Welcome back to the Warehouse Podcast. I'm Tyler. I'm Jesse. And I'm Eli. And guys, we're back after the Orioles played some okay baseball this past week. They weren't terrible. They weren't the New York Yankees. They weren't that bad, so that's good. How are, how are we feeling? Weren't bad enough to have a silver lining of the week segment on the podcast wow. today, so that's <laughs> that's good. Um, just a game below 500, so that's good. Pretty good. And they're road warriors, man. The Orioles, prior to the loss on... Uh, on Wednesday, they uh, were like, I think, the winningest team in uh, the American League on the road, which is pretty impressive. And if we were only home Warriors, we would be a pretty good team. That's true. There's a lot of ifs if to make the Orioles a good team, which we'll yes. talk about today. Um, all right. So since last time we recorded, we recorded in between uh, games of the first doubleheader against the Mariners last week, uh, where the Orioles lost the first one, won the second then the Orioles lost the other doubleheader uh, against the Mariners. Then they went on the road to Texas, where they took two out of three from the Rangers and wrapped up a mini two-game series in Miami, splitting the games with the Marlins. Uh, quick note on the Rangers series, if you guys watched that, were, were the camera angles really bad for you, too? Just terrible. Yeah, it felt like yeah. we were so far away from the action. Right. I hated it. Yeah, I, I really don't understand. Like, there are so many teams that still do – like the third base offset behind the pitcher, you know, and you're like at a 20 degree angle looking at these pitches. And for me as a former pitcher, I want to appreciate every ounce of movement and a slider that like cuts low and away. You can't track that at all. It just stays in the same line from that angle, you know, over behind the shortstop. And yeah, the Rangers new stadium, they did not account for that well enough. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, Enough baseball has been played that it seems like the these camera people would have been able to figure this out at this point after almost a century of Major League Baseball. Granted, maybe not on TV, but a century of Major League Baseball happening. So, Well, this is yeah. always... Huh? I was just going to say, we got 60 years of baseball on TV. So it's true. Maybe not quite 60. 50, at least. There, there's always something that happens with these new stadiums that... I, I don't know, architects or whoever don't account for like the, the Vikings, the football team built the stadium a couple years ago, and then it just killed a bunch of birds because they just didn't account for birds flying into the it was stadium. too shiny. <laughs> just too shiny. <laughs> so it's beautiful though, from the outside, I'll right. give them credit. Of course, but they those... made it for humans, not birds. <laughs> anyway, we don't have to play at Texas again this year. So that's, that's cool, but it was kind of neat to play teams outside of the American league East or national league East for the first time in over a year. So that was neat. Um, all right. So let's talk about the series. Not, not typically not game by game necessarily, but just some things we've sort of noticed. The offense has started to get going a little bit, um, but then they also got shut out twice in the last week. So I don't know. It's very stop and start. We had a very Luke Scott type of week. If everybody remembers <laughs> the Luke Scott streakiness, um, and especially Ryan Mountcastle is, is a little bit frustrating because this is a guy that, you know, we expected to be a rookie of the year candidate and he just can't quite get off the ground is batting just 169 on the year. You know, we know batting average isn't always the best way to go about evaluating somebody, but no matter what you look at his numbers and Ryan Mountcastle is kind of struggling. So Eli, I don't know, are you seeing anything from Ryan Mountcastle that you're worried about, or maybe even something that you're encouraged by so far? Yeah. I mean, I think the best thing to say is it, there's nothing to be encouraged by right now. You know, he was <laughs> struggling in the field, got relegated to DH slash first base, you know, first base only on a replacement basis and hasn't 
really been able to handle DHing yet. Uh, that being said, the thing that is encouraging to me is last year he hit 340, you know, was absolutely mashing. And we're like three weeks into the season. So obviously not a reason to overreact right now. The dude still has a lot of talent. He's still a top 100 prospect in the MLB and could very well still win rookie of the year if he picks it up. Okay. Yeah. Jesse, what are your thoughts? I mean, there, are we approaching a minor league option with Ryan Mountcastle? What do you think about the situation? No, I I don't think we're in that territory yet. Um, It's going to take, I think it's going to take a a really extended uh, period of time of Mountcastle not performing uh, in order for him to, him to be sent down. Um, I I think what the situation is um, he obviously is good enough to not be in the minor leagues anymore. So the amount of learning and uh, experience that he's going to get from getting minor league at bats um, is not at all. um, It's not significant relative to the experience uh, that he'll get uh, getting major league at bats. So um, I think that uh, the Orioles are going to be flexible enough in trying to put him in the right situations in order to succeed and in order to do well, that it's going to take a lot for him to get sent back down. Um, this three week period is not nearly enough. Um, the Orioles will, they can bench him a few times. Um, they can DH him, not have him play in the field. So he can only focus and concentrate on his hitting. Um, so the Orioles have, he's kind of the centerpiece of, the Orioles projects right now. So that gives him a lot of um, a room uh, to maneuver based on uh, what is best for, for him and his needs. Right. And I mean, what I would say is what I'm encouraged by, or at least maybe, maybe makes me less worried is that he is starting to hit the ball a little bit better recently. His batting average on balls in play is 238, which is well below the major league average, which is typically around like 280 to 290. So, you know, if he gets a little bit luckier, you're going to see that batting average bump up a bit. Um, But that's not going to help him in the strikeout and walk department, which has been a problem for him this year. He's striking out almost a third of the time. He's walking like half as much as he did last year. So there is definitely a plate discipline issue going on there. So, you know, he's got to work out some kinks. It's the classic kind of sophomore slump situation that, um, you know, he could go to the alternate camp and work on, but the Orioles might as well let him try and work on stuff in the big leagues. And there, there's a certain amount of Ryan Mountcastle that we're going to have to just accept. Um, obviously, he can make improvements, but we know that this is kind of an Adam Jones type free swinger up at the plate. Um, this isn't a guy that is going to take a lot of walks, that isn't going to show tremendous plate discipline, um, etc. Granted, Adam Jones later in his career did end up developing some plate discipline, and um, you know. <laughs> I mean, to, to be as good a hitter as he was, um, but early in his career, he was really a free swinger up at the plate. And um, so I think that uh, there's a lot of Ryan Mountcastle that Oriole fans are just going to have to accept and understand that he might be able to make slightly better, but uh, overall, he's not going to reinvent himself as a major league hitter. So, Yeah, yeah, also to the effect of what Tyler was saying, uh, Mountcastle's about at the two-third, like at 66th and 67th percentile on barreling balls this year. So he definitely is making some hard contact. 
um, like his expected ISO and ISO is slugging minus batting average. Is that right? I think that's uh, it. That sounds right. I'm not sure. Yeah, but so <clears throat> it basically quantifies power and power only. Um, his expected ISO, you know, is at 55, 55th percentile. So he definitely is hitting the ball hard. Um, but as you guys said, he is striking out at a ridiculous clip. He's not walking. He's swinging away. And major league pitchers are picking him apart right now. Yeah. And we're kind of getting the opposite end of what we got last year with him, where he was sort of outplaying his peripherals. Now he's slightly underperforming his peripherals and it'll, it'll balance out eventually. Jess, what do you want to say? I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, the strikeouts are another big part of his game that um, obviously he needs to cut down on more than where he's at right now, but he's going to strike out. Yeah. You take the good with the bad and that's uh that's the current situation, but yeah, we got to keep, keep sending him out there, whether it's DH or left field and see what he can do. Um, somebody that's not having trouble, which was really struggling at the start of the season, is the Orioles starting shortstop, Freddie Galvis. This is a guy that was kind of the the center of attention for all the Orioles' problems uh, on offense, despite him being like the eight or nine hitter every day, and he wasn't on the team for his bat, but he was really struggling to start the year. Um, since the last time we recorded, he's actually gone deep a couple times uh, and has, it looks like, six extra base hits altogether. Um, and now his triple slash line for the year is 271, 338, and a 475 slugging percentage. So, Jesse, Freddie Galvis is back. Uh, I mean, he's going to keep this up for the whole year, right? Uh, probably not this, but um, <laughs> no, he's definitely a lot better. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, he's moved up in the lineup, so he's like our sixth hitter most of the time now. Um, and if we get desperate enough at the top of the order, I think that you could see him be a two hitter. Wow. Especially with, <laughs> especially with Santander going down. Um, mm. I think it's possible that at some point in the season, he gets in there very temporarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the time, I think he's going to, you know, slide between the six and nine spot, depending on how he's hitting um, at the current moment. Um, so Eli, please respond to Jesse suggesting yeah. Freddie Galvis hit second in the order. I definitely. I am so. not saying. I am not <laughs> suggesting it. What I am saying is that at some point in the season, I think he will be the number two hitter for at least a game or a few. On a day where we have three starting outfielders <laughs> taking a break, and I don't know, that was all I had. Um, <laughs> no, I, I I think that I think that Freddie Galvis is you, you know. He's better than he was, and he's not as good as he is. You, you know, he's going to settle out hitting about 250 this year. His slugging will not be approaching 500. You know, he's going to hit singles. He might shoot a couple doubles one way or another, and he'll be fine. Um, but he is there to fill space and take up time. And, you know, like if somehow miraculously we stumble upon another Jose Iglesias who was also not supposed to be a good hitter and just miraculously was an absolute freak last year. I wouldn't be mad at it. And I'd be happy to see someone like that in the two slot. Wow. So you're saying the two slot too. I definitely do not believe it's going to (laughs) happen. I'm just saying if he turns into and totally, totally outperforms all expectations, I would be quite happy to, for Jesse to be right. And for me to say I'm wrong is the point. Okay. Okay, if we got this Jose Iglesias 2020 production out of him, okay, I would buy in the two slot. All right. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, I think <laughs> I think 
if he if he keeps his bat hot and Brandon Hyde can expect that you know he's hitting the ball really well, I think that he could get up there at some point. So. Um, okay. Obviously, this this streak right now probably isn't going to last much much longer. But no. um, if something like this were to happen uh, later down the road, I could definitely see it happening. Yeah, I mean it's sort of the same vein as JJ Hardy hitting two years ago when it really didn't make sense. Like, but JJ Hardy's a better hitter than Freddie Galvis ever was, so that made more sense than Galvis we were also hitting. a better hitting team back then, though, too. Well, yeah. I mean, th- I, this I is a that. this is a offense that is not nearly, um, at, but it's not at a great level no, right now. But it should be better than it is. I think the Orioles are not mm-hmm. a they're not a bottom five offense. I think they should be better than that. And what I will say about Freddie Galvis, and I wrote something on Camden Chat this past week, is basically like he's doing exactly. I mean, this is a this is a an outbreak that's not going to maintain, but. He's doing exactly what the Orioles front office wanted him to do. He, the Orioles don't have a ton of high minors options at shortstop. They did the Richie Martin thing for a year. Didn't work out. He's still in the organization, but they clearly don't trust him to be the guy every day. Galvis is going to make the easy plays. He's going to mess up some plays, which we've seen so far too. And there is some, uh, you know, legit, legitimateness, whatever, if that's a word to legitimate, <laughs> le- legitimate can, um, criticism. legitimacy. Okay. Legitimacy. Uh, oh, Come sorry. on, Tyler. Come Look, on. guys, you know what I'm trying to say. There is some legitimacy to criticisms of his defense this year. His range has been a little bit disappointing, but in general, he's filling a spot. He's doing a fine job. He'll probably be here for one year, and then next year you'll see somebody else, or maybe Jemai Jones or Richie Martin or somebody get another shot until a guy like Westberg or Henderson or whoever is ready to be up here. So just bear with it. He'll hit, like Eli said, 250 with a little bit of power and he'll be fine. Okay. Let's he's go. The, he's the last person in the offense that people need to worry about. I think. Yeah. If the offense is not working, it's not just because of Freddie Galvis. There's a lot of other reasons. Uh, okay. Talking about the offense and a big issue we've got now, which Jesse, you just talked about uh, with Galvis potentially hitting too, is with Anthony, Anthony, Anthony Santander out. Uh, as soon as Austin Hayes came back, Santander went down with a left ankle sprain it's not expected to be super serious, but um, he could be out up to four weeks. So, you know, what do you guys think about this injury? How does it impact the team in general? Eli, maybe I'll go to you first about this. How does Anthony Santander missing time impact the Orioles roster complexion? It, it's kind of an interesting thing to me because, you know, the Orioles, as we've talked about, you know, outfield depth is the, you know, if there is one strength on the Orioles, maybe outside of the bullpen, it's Orioles outfield depth. And, you know, we were in this situation where we had what we thought was Mountcastle and, you know, uh, Mullins and Hayes in center and then Santander in right. And then you throw DJ Stewart into the mix and then you throw, you know, every once in a while a Ryan McKenna who the Orioles are trying to trying to get him some time clearly. And this is just opening up room in that crowded outfield, right? We all have confidence in Santander to be a performer day in, day out. And seeing seeing him go down enables a little bit more of Austin Hayes. You know, it enables a little bit more DJ Stewart and it enables a little more Ryan McKenna. Um, all three of those guys are now, you know, well, in the way of Hayes and Stewart are everyday outfielders now in the Orioles with Mountcastle sucking the way he has. And Ryan McKenna now slots in as the fourth outfielder. And 
that just it leads us in an interesting situation. We, you know, the one strength we were going to rely on this year is not entirely there, but at the same time, we're going to see, you know, what happens with it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a lot. It, it complicates things a little bit. Jesse, what are you thinking about the outfield situation with Santander on the mend? Well, I, d- I definitely think what Eli is talking about is true. We have, um, uh, we are much more prepared as a baseball team for Anthony Santander to go down than we are for Freddie Galvis to go down or Michael Franco to go down, uh, Franco to go down. So, um, yeah, I, I think what Eli's talking about is correct. Um, yeah, I mean, we obviously, in terms of a competing from a competing perspective, um, he's obviously a big loss. Um, this could be you know, this could be a while before he gets back. Having him out of the lineup for a month potentially um, could be a problem uh, as far as our offense goes, even though he wasn't hitting that great prior to being injured. Um, So, yeah, but the flip side to that, of course, is what Eli was saying, that uh, people are going to get an opportunity now that they weren't going to get before. I'm interested to see how it impacts what the Orioles plans were at the trade deadline, because there was talk about Santander being of interest of the Marlins over the winter. And I think that what we're talking about right now with there being sort of a glut of outfield options, which is never a bad thing, but you're going to want to see Ryan McKenna play a little bit more. The Orioles clearly value DJ Stewart's role in the offense, and they may just not see a way for Anthony Santander to stick around long-term with Yusniel Diaz coming soon hopefully Heston Kerstad is a you know a college bat that they would imagine is going to move through the system pretty fast um even though he's obviously had some issues there but it'll be interesting to see because the Orioles don't have a ton of trade chips that I'm seeing obviously maybe Trey Mancini somebody like that um so this Santander thing I think it's a bummer for the offense but I think maybe in a you know a broader look at the Orioles long-term plans it might be more of an issue for building towards the future via the trade market um, any thoughts on that before we move on? Yeah, I, that's definitely an interesting point. You know, I think the single biggest knock on Santander as a trade candidate is he hasn't put together a full season yet. He didn't even play the entire 60 last year. Um, you know, the way that the Orioles, when we took him as a rule five pick in 2017 or whatever it was, the way that we got him through that season was he was injured the entire season. You know, when he was clearly too young to be on a major league roster, we were able to push him through just because, he spent so much time on the injured list. Um, so as much promise as we've seen out of him, as much intrigue as there is with him, uh, it definitely hurts his trade value. And seeing it spring up again this year is not not comforting in that sense. Right. <laughs> the other thing I'm, I'm not sure about is I, I don't know what his trade value is exactly, right. right? And that's for exactly the thing Eli was saying the fact that he hasn't put a whole season together, I think the Orioles probably get more value out of keeping him on the roster, trying to show that he can play roughly at least a full season and then maybe trading him. Um, but I, I don't think um, the Orioles at this point are going to get the value for him that they would hope um, if they're looking to deal him away. So. Well, yeah, I think that's part where this injury kind of comes in. If he hadn't had it, even if he comes back for the trade deadline, which it sounds like he will, but 
you know, if he hadn't had this injury and he just played till, you know, late J- July, you could say, Hey, look, last year was fluky. He's fine. He's played three straight months. Like you can take this guy on. So yeah, I, I, I don't think it totally precludes them from making a trade still, but it makes it a little bit harder to do. Um, speaking of injuries, we got a guy back from injury, another off injured uh, outfielder. Austin Hayes is back and uh, play, making some interesting plays in the outfield. He booted a ball on Wednesday and then made a nice play to make up for it. Um, but so what do you guys think about the outfield now that Hayes is back? Santander's gone. Mountcastle's got his issues. How do you think the Orioles and uh, Brandon Hyde will juggle the, uh, the outfield at this point? Uh, Jesse, what's your, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think it's going to look different. I think day in and day out. Um, I think there are going to be a lot of changes. Uh, I think other than Mullins being in center field, uh, m- at least almost every day, maybe if there's a lefty pitcher, they sit him down for a day or whatever. But um, he's basically going to be the everyday center fielder at this point in time. Um, but as far as the corner outfield spots, there is going to be a lot of volatility um, it looks like Mountcastle is going to be occupying the DH slot a little more. So it is going to likely be Hayes, Stewart, and McKenna that are rotating through the three, through the two corner outfield positions. So, um, yeah, and I, th- I think Hayes is uh, going to probably see the bulk of, of that time. Him and Stewart are probably going to be playing the most, and then McKenna on occasion, so. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, Eli, do you have similar thoughts there? Yeah, fully agreed. Uh, I, I think that the kind of interesting thing about it, I mean, even DJ Stewart has had problems with injuries. And so it, it'll be interesting to see what Hayes and Stewart do with this opportunity. They both definitely have promise with the bat. And DJ Stewart in particular being an incredibly streaky hitter, it'd be really nice to see him put together a solid month of production and – you know, kind of position himself as a, as a potential piece in a future Orioles lineup. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a big deal for Austin Hayes. He, he has to prove he can stay healthy. We've seen it in short spurts, but it's yet to be on display full time. And I think Anthony Santander going down is kind of perfect timing for Austin Hayes because with Santander still in there, I'm not sure that Hayes gets into the lineup most days. I think he probably becomes the fourth outfielder because Stewart, I think they really like his bat. Mullins has proven he can handle the everyday job in center. And Santander was the team's MVP last year. So for Austin Hayes, this is a big opportunity to prove I can play every day and I can be productive and you can figure something else out for Anthony Santander once he's back. Um, sort of in the flurry to get Austin Hayes back, though, Dean Kramer was option to Bowie. Um, we should say it, the Orioles have made it pretty clear that they did it with the intention of bringing him back shortly because they had two off days in the same week. But Eli, do you think there's any, anything else at work there or is it as simple as it sounds? I think it's pretty hard to argue that Kramer was not struggling. I mean, he definitely has, I mean, he's, you know, averaging well under five innings a game. He is taking uh, a lot of pitches to get through hitters. He's really, he's struggling a bit. Um, he's shown the good stuff that we saw out of him last year, but I think that this is also a time to just say, okay, we can send him down and we can give him, you know, five days in a relaxed atmosphere, get him to throw a bullpen with, you know, the old pitching coach he was working with at the training site 
and then bring him right back and slot back into the rotation. I think uh, I, I think it's a little mental breather for him. I think it takes away some of the stress and some of the pressure of being in the major leagues for a moment. And as you said, you know, this is a result of us having a couple extra off days. This is the result of us needing a roster slot temporarily and not much else. Uh, Dean Kramer will be back. All right, Jesse, do you think anything else nefarious is going on? No, similar to what Eli said, um, with the current makeup of this Orioles starting rotation, uh, I think Dean Kramer has a pretty solidified spot in the rotation, similar to Mountcastle's situation in the field. Um, his spot in the rotation is pretty secure, um, and it's going to take a lot in order for him to be bumped out of the rotation. Um so, yeah, I, I don't think there's a big deal. He's had, what, three starts, I think. Uh, yep. So that he's going to get the Orioles uh, bringing him up last year. Um, they've definitely demonstrated that they want to take a good look at this guy and they are going to give him the opportunity uh, to perform and to show his ability at the majors. For sure. I do think Eli's point is a good one about kind of getting away from the major league scene for a minute, you know, a week, probably kind of getting in the lab with, with a pitching development and saying like, Oh, here's what you're doing. Well, here's what you're not doing. Well, he has yet to get through five full innings just yet. So it has been a labor, but he just came off of what was his best start of the year. So I think good things are to come. He'll get another shot. I think I'd rather see him up than Keegan Aiken or any of the other guys at the moment. So yeah, Dean Kramer will be back probably you know, before we've recorded our next episode and we can kind of go from there because there might be other decisions made um, in that time. Uh, but pitching that is going well is the Orioles bullpen. We, we frantically looked up these numbers right before starting the podcast, but since we last recorded, or actually think since the 15th of April, uh, the Orioles bullpen has an ERA under two uh, and in 22 and two thirds innings, they've struck out 33 batters. And pretty much everybody is doing well, except for Sean Armstrong, who has continued to struggle. Um, and I don't really know. He's not really changed anything. He's, he's walking guys. He's getting hit hard. So there's some problems there. But Jesse, who are some guys maybe you want to point out in the bullpen that you've really been impressed by? And, you know, how, how sustainable do you think their performances are? Well, I think the strength of the Orioles bullpen, uh, like with a lot of teams, uh, it's going to come back to the the back end of the bullpen. Um, they're just so solid. Uh, Tate, I think, is going to have a really good year. Tanner Scott is going to have a good year. And then as of now, Cesar Valdez is doing really well, too. So um, I think it's always going to be the back end of the rotation. I think the the middle relief guys are a little more questionable going forward. Um, there have been some encouraging signs, um, but middle relievers tend to fluctuate in their performance and their ability at a given time. So uh, guys like Paul Fry, I think will, um, you know, he's already been inconsistent, you know, to start the year. Uh, he was really struggling and now he's pitching well. Um, and there are other guys in the middle relievers that um, it looks like uh, are pitching well, but probably are outperforming our expectations, outperforming uh, their performance uh, historically. So um, I, I think the, the middle relievers are going to come down a little bit, um, but it has been encouraging so far. And the back end is something that we can really, uh, I, fe I feel like pr feel pretty secure about. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, Eli, I know you are particularly intrigued by Travis Lakins. You can talk on anyone you want, but you did mention Lakins before we started. Yeah, I, I thought Lakins has come out and looked pretty strong. In the first, uh, in his first outing, I remember he came out and he threw three balls absolutely nowhere near the strike zone. <laughs> I tweeted about it, and then he proceeded to strike the guy out and have a one-two-three inning. He, uh, I, I mean, his fastball is riding, you know, 95, 96. He's got the good hard cutter at 91, 92. Uh, I, I think he's looked really good. Um, the other dude I want to touch on is Cesar Valdez, not because anyone needs me to tell them that he's been pitching well. I think it's just incredibly frustrating watching him because somehow he manages to throw the ball absolutely <laughs> nowhere near the strike zone at 76 miles an hour, and it's just deadly effective. Um, I don't know what it is about him. You know, maybe he's pronating and really emphasizing. For those who don't know, pronating is like the action of kind of rolling your pointer finger over the ball as him a side armor. And that's really how you get good action on a changeup. So maybe he's emphasizing that so much that he just has no idea where the ball's going. I don't know, but it's frustrating to watch and pretty hilarious because, you know, <laughs> yeah. he'll throw two balls in the left-handed batter's box and then throw a 2-0 changeup at 77 miles an hour down the middle, and people look ridiculous trying to hit this guy. Um, it's just hilarious. Yeah, I mean, he's got a, a few change-ups. I mean, he calls it the dead fish or whatever, but he grabs it right. like tons <laughs> of different ways. And I think sometimes he's not even totally sure what it's going to do. It's sort of like a, a knuckleball in that way, where it's like just get it in the general direction of the hitter and hope it moves a bunch. It is, it's, it's something. Because you got a guy like Tanner Scott throwing 100 miles an hour, and you got Cesar Valdez, and they're having similar outcomes. It's wild. Right. Um, one guy I did want to mention who hasn't pitched in a while, and I'm kind of curious on this situation, is Tyler Wells has not pitched since April 11th. And, you know, I know they're trying to protect the Rule 5 guys, but if you don't have a guy pitch for almost two weeks, that seems like a problem to me. I don't know, what, I don't know if you guys have thoughts about it about the rule five situation and what they're doing with Tyler Wells. But like, is that something that's sustainable to protect a bullpen pitcher that much? Max Scruller is already at the alternate site with he's on the IL, but he's at the alternate site working on some stuff, which seems like one of those faux IL stints. Cause it was like a tendonitis thing. So I don't know what's going on with the rule five. Eli, are you seeing anything funny going on with the rule five situation? Yeah. I, I don't know how much of it's funny and how much of it is, you know, just um, like you said, a means of protecting them right now, you know, the reason we're having this discussion is the bullpen's pitching well. Right. Um, and we're in a situation where we can protect them. The Orioles have not really had many blowout games in one direction or another that it's easy to slot someone into. And I, yeah, I, I think that, I think that Tyler Wells is doing fine. You know, he hasn't shown anything that's super uh, disconcerting in any way. I, I think that, maybe he's got a little elbow soreness, you know, and they're giving him a couple extra days in the middle. Maybe they're just happy with working with him in the background, letting the guys who are performing, keep doing so keeping them in a good rhythm. And then once he figures out, you know, Oh, like how to get a little extra emphasis on his curveball, a little extra, you know, whatever. Um, I think, you know, it could be a situation where they're just keeping him in the background while he figures something out. He's working through a couple bullpens a couple times a week, and then they can throw him back in there. Uh, I don't read anything into it too much. I think the Orioles are going to try to keep both these guys. I think this year with the 26-man roster, 
with the no limit on the number of pitchers you can have, I think it becomes much more feasible to stash two guys in your bullpen, especially because our guys are pitching well. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely bending over backwards. Jess, do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, I think I kind of agree. Um, one of the things – now, I am not as confident that they're going to both make it through the, the season, but what I'll say also is that it is very early in the year – if this were to happen two months down the road or something like that, I think it would be a lot more alarming um, just because at that point, if they are trying to hide them at that point, then it's a little more serious because they're midway through the season. There's kind of an expectation that they should be demonstrating some competence at the major league level and not pitching in two weeks. Uh, it, It shows that, that the team is really not confident in your ability. Um, So the fact that it's so early though, the fact that the Orioles do have the luxury of hiding them uh, in tandem with, like Eli said, uh, the Orioles not having any massive blowout wins uh, or being behind uh, in a blowout, um, I think has allowed them to, to do what they're doing right now. Um, so it's not concerning right now, but I don't think it's sustainable moving forward and they're going to have to work them into, uh, pitch at least a little more often than this. Yeah, for sure. We'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll keep an eye on it on the, on the rule five note, just real quick, Zach pop ERA 14.54. So maybe he's coming back boys. (laughs) Fingers crossed. (laughs) All right, uh, more pitching, more good pitching news. The Orioles have pitched way better this year than I thought they were going to. But but John Means is dominated and was really good again against the Rangers on Sunday. Did not get the win because the Orioles' offense fell asleep. But seven scoreless, three hits, nine strikeouts. Um, you know, I don't know how we want to talk about John Means. I know I thought I sent a text to you guys the other day. You know, John Means is he Eric Bedard 2.0? Could this be a, a big trade that changes the trajectory of the Orioles? Uh, you know, franchise, Jesse, I don't know if you have thoughts on that or just thoughts on how means is pitching, but, but what do you think? Well, my initial thought is that we started uh, the game that he was pitching. Our offense started the game sleeping. We didn't fall asleep midway <laughs> through the game. Um, we never Fair. woke up for the game. Um, but what I would say, is, I, yeah, I, I think that means is uh, I think he's definitely working himself into be a potential trade ship. Um, it's still kind of up in the air whether the Orioles feel that he can be a really good two or three starter and whether he's going to be here when the Orioles are competitive. Um, I I don't think uh, the market is there for an Eric Bedard type trade for him. Uh, if it was, uh, I think the Orioles should probably jump on that <laughs> if we're going to get an everyday center fielder, a closer that we're going to flip for a couple more good prospects, you know? So, um, yeah, but, uh, so I don't think the market is there for that, but, um, I, I think with a little more time, with a little more, um, with him pitching, uh, really, really well, uh, maybe him putting up another full good season, um that could definitely that gets them into the the ballpark um of being that kind of trade candidate um especially with how uh much of a premium starting pitching is in the major leagues today um there's definitely going to be a lot of interest in him and uh because he hasn't hit free agency yet he's still uh under 
uh, team control yeah. for a few more years, um, it's definitely going to make him an, uh, an appealing uh, trade ship for other teams to be looking at. And left-handed and, and just now seems to be kind of figuring stuff out a lot, a lot there. Eli, what are your thoughts on this whole mean situation? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll just speak to how he's performing first. I mean, he is throwing the ball extremely well. We've joked about, you know, baseball savant pages. You want to see a lot of red. His has a lot of red. Um, <laughs> I mean, his expected on base against is in the 82nd percentile. You know, he is not walking people. He's not giving up very hard contact. Uh, exit velocity in the 60, 63rd percentile. Um, you know, he it, just all around, you look at the dude and he's hitting spots. He's mixing in four pitches, which is something he was not able to do in his all-star season. Um, you know, it's easy to knock him because he was pitching against the Rangers and really how good of an indication is that they're not a good team, but he still executed against them. Um, I think that, you know, I think there's a lot to feel good about with John means and that goes without saying. Uh, as to him as a trade ship, it's pretty hard to argue that he's going to be a pretty valuable trade ship. He'll have two plus years of service time after this season. Um, I think that a lot of teams would be very, very happy to get two years of below market value on a, you know, solid number three, potentially number two pitcher in a good rotation. People pay a lot of money for that. Uh, people give up good prospects for that. You know, so if we could find a good team that would be interested, will we get Chris Tillman, Adam Jones, and George Sherrill? Probably not. But, you know, we, we could definitely, we could land a pretty pretty high level blue chip prospect, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's it depends on what the trajectory, what the Orioles think is likely for the return to the postseason or the possible return to the postseason. If they think it is next season, then no, you probably keep John Means around. If it's 2023, 2024, then I think you got to start thinking, hey, is John Means more valuable to us in, in terms of getting prospects or in terms of play on the field? And that's something that only Mike Elias can determine. I think he'll know more about that once the minor league season gets going and you see where Adley Rutschman's at, you see where Gunnar Henderson is, um, the Grayson Rodriguez deal hall, these guys that are going to be impactful on the next good Orioles team. If they're maybe a little more advanced than you thought, then you say, Hey, maybe we want to kick this up to 2022 and let's just keep John means around. But um, yeah, I think it's something we have to start thinking about for sure. T- timing. I think kind of like you're saying, timing is going to be, I think the biggest factor in this equation here, um, how quickly the Orioles think they're going to compete and how you know how long they think it's going to take yeah absolutely we will keep an eye on it uh kind of in that same vein if the Orioles are going to get back to contention they're going to need production eventually from Heston Kerstad he was the Orioles uh, top draft choice a year ago uh, the number two overall pick uh outfielder from Arkansas he has yet to really participate in any sort of uh workouts with the Orioles because he developed myocarditis uh and has really just not been around. He didn't come to spring training despite having an invite and he's been late to the Orioles alternate camp, but he has officially uh, started rehabbing and he has been, uh, he has made it to Bowie and is part of the Orioles alternate camp at the moment. Uh, Our understanding and the reporting has been that he's going to work out there. And then once the minor league season begins, he's going to report to Sarasota and work out at the Orioles spring training facility to ramp up to game action. And then from there, he'll likely be, 
you know, sent to probably Delmarva uh, to, to get going. But, you know, this is good news, guys. How are we feeling about uh, Heston Kerstad being back and, and actually wearing an Orioles uh, uniform? Eli, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm pretty happy. Uh, I definitely want to see what he's got, you know, at, in the draft, pretty much regardless of what people thought of the pick, you know, obviously the Orioles were going for under slot value with him realized they could save some money for like Carter Baumler in the fifth round who, you know, was coming out of high school. We had to pay him to get him away from his college commitment. Uh, regardless of all that, Heston Kerstad was probably the best left-handed pop in the draft. Um, he, you know, consistently performed. He was in the SEC. He did a really, really great job of competing against a lot of high level competition. Uh, you know, he played for team USA. He, just performs he just hits and you know that's one thing that every scouting report you read they say oh he's got kind of a weird swing it's long it's a little bit loopy but he just does it you know he just performs and that's an exciting thought um one note that i did want to add on the myocarditis a lot of people are now associating that with covid these days you know it is like a heart condition as a result of a viral infection They say his did not come from COVID-19. I'm not quite sure what it came from, but that was just an interesting note that I had stumbled across. Yeah, and I I would say, like, I'm not overly concerned about it because we're seeing Eduardo Rodriguez is back after missing a season with it. And the Orioles, you know, it's become a joke at this point what the Orioles' physical is. If it was something that they were super worried about at the time of the draft, he likely wouldn't have been drafted. So I think it's okay. He's missed a year of games, but last year, if you were going to miss a year, last year was the year to miss and he's back and hopefully ramping up and he'll play some meaningful games before the summer's over. Um, Jesse, any thoughts on the situation? Uh, I mean, it's obviously mainly a symbolic thing that we could get excited about. Um, So it's, it's a sign that, you know, good things are hopefully going to, to come. Um, but in terms of him, I mean, we're going to need him to perform. Uh, he was our first draft pick. Um, so there's obviously a lot of expectation that he's going to he's gonna hit for us. Yeah, no, for sure. The Orioles, you can't miss on drafting number two overall or else the whole rebuild is going to be a problem. So, yeah, there's pressure on Heston Kerstad, and uh, we'll definitely be following it and watching very closely. All right. Uh, what we want to do real quick, we got two more things. Uh, first, we're going to do Guess That Oriole. This is the section where we give you three facts about a former Oriole. They don't all have to be Oriole-related facts. And then you go on social media, on our Twitter specifically, you find the tweet where we put these three facts and you respond to us. And then what we do, if you get it right, is we shout you out on the show. So that's what we're going to do this week. Is uh, Last week, our, our three facts were had quintuplets at 29 years old. First player to hit a home run off the top of the foul pole at Oreo Park and was an all-star in 2003 and 2005 while with the Orioles. The correct answer, of course, is Melvin Mora. And it looks like we got five people that got it right. Uh, Bob Felon said Melmo, of course. Hunter Davis said Melvin. Michael Long just tweeted at us with La Vida Es Un Carnaval, which was Melvin Mora's walk-up song. Uh, uh, Trill Foden said Need More hints need more hints that was a joke and that's at josh lynn esr he's a utah street report writer and then denise williams said melvin mora so five people got it right last week thank you all for participating we think this week's going to be a little more difficult um 
So we'll give you three facts. I'll give you the first, then Jesse, and then Eli, and then again, go follow our Twitter and respond to it. So the first fact on this week's guest at Oriole is they signed a five-year, $50 million contract with the Los Angeles Angels. Uh, they were an all-star with the Texas Rangers in 2006. And despite being in the major leagues for 12 years, they never hit 20 home runs in a single season. So th- that's interesting. No Orioles specific hints this year. So if you only paid attention to this, this person while they were with the Orioles, you might not really know what's going on. So go on Twitter, follow us at the warehouse pod and uh, find that tweet and respond to us with uh, your guesses. All right, guys. So next week we'll be talking more about the Orioles, obviously, because that's what this whole podcast is about. And uh, <laughs> it'll be following um, a homestand, a seven-game homestand, or maybe somewhere in the middle of that seven-game homestand. The Orioles have three games against the streaking Oakland Athletics and then four games against the lowly New York Yankees. So do we have predictions on what the Orioles are going to do this week with, uh, with those two series? Jesse, you're leaning well, back in your chair very ferociously. Uh, yeah, I mean, what... <laughs> For as I think the Yankees series is more of a toss up. Uh, we always seem to struggle against the Yankees, but they are doing so badly right now that um, there is some hope for us. Uh, as far as the A's go, the A's are another team that historically the Orioles always seem to play horribly against, seem to be mm-hmm. getting swept by a lot. Um, so seven and, and oh, in or... the fact, and the fact. <laughs> and the fact that the Orioles are playing them at home where we've done so terribly, I feel like we're going to get swept by the A's. The Yankees, I would say uh, there's more hope for, and I would say we'll, we'll get two from the Yankees. Okay. So Jesse's got us going two and five in those two series. Okay. Eli. The Orioles will go one and six. Whoa, man. That's the Yankees, despite the fact that they are not a good team right now, <laughs> the Orioles suck against the Yankees. I mean, yeah. there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And you put that team in the tin can that is Camden Yards, and you get some not great starting pitching against them. The they're going to hit Harvey on the mound. Yeah. Right, right. Hey. You get Matt Harvey on the mound, and they're <laughs> going to start hitting bombs. Labor Torres, you know, hit 14 against us in one year, totally inflated his stats. Everyone thought he was good. It doesn't really matter because he's good against the <laughs> Orioles, and this is an Orioles podcast. So Labor Torres, despite – did you guys see Yankees fans are, like, calling for him to get sent down? Well, that's Yankee fans, though. I know, but it – I mean, like, I don't know. How, 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 how much – I'm stuttering because I'm so infuriated by this. How much worse – of a fan can you be you know they're just terrible people they're terrible <laughs> if if the yank imagine the yankee fans had to watch this orioles right team right and what i mean what would they be saying about like every player on the team? no i i, I mean yeah. i was I, I actually was thinking about bringing this up with mount castle like yeah. if yankees fans mm-hmm. had a top prospect who performed really well last year oh they'd they'd oh, be yeah. calling for his head well, they I mean, threw, they, they would have wanted him traded weeks ago. <laughs> it was the Yankee fans that threw baseballs on the field last week when the right. team was performing. They were booing them. And I mean, you know, I get it. There's there's heightened expectations for New York based teams. I understand all that stuff. But yeah, I'm like, I get it. Yankees fans have the, the 20 whatever championships that they bring up all the time. But no, they could not last a week as a fan of of any anyone team. else. 
anyone. anyone. <laughs> it's Besides just, the Dodgers. <laughs> yeah, that is it. Uh, it's it's an absolutely it's absurd. But right. I, I get it. But I, I think the Orioles will will split the series with the Yankees. I think they're gonna go two and two because as we've said, I don't think the Yankees pitching is all that great apart from Garrett Cole, and the offense is not hitting that well at the at the moment. And you know, the Orioles pitching could be just what the Yankees need to to fix things, but as we just discussed, <laughs> the Orioles pitching's been better than I expected it to be. So um, we'll see that. And then and I think we'll take one of three from the, the athletics. I think we will snap their winning streak. So that's kind of a bold prediction. They've won 11 in a row coming into Camden Yards. The Orioles will win one of them, break the streak, and, uh, yeah, split it with the, uh, with the Yanks. I so would I, be I, shocked, Tyler. If, <laughs> if they if took yeah. one? If we took one, I'd be shocked. I, I also want to say my one in my one in six was against the Yankees. I think the athletics sweep us as well. Wow. That, they're, they're so good right now. They are good. Oh, they started the season, what, like 0-6, though? It's so absurd. They were like 0-3. Oh, I don't think so. I think they they started – they lost – they got swept by the Athletics or by the Astros. Astros. yeah. I don't know. They were really bad to start the year because I, I listened to this other baseball podcast, and they're like, do you think the A's can get back to 500 by, like, mid-May? And they were like, no way. And now they're <laughs> they're 12-7, and 7 and it's April 22nd. Um. That's funny. So let me. Yeah, I, I do not feel good against the A's. You get You're right. Oh, and six. They started the season. Oh, there you go. Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, you you give Matt Olson the flag court in right field, and once again, sorry to pick on Matt Harvey, but you give Matt Olson the flag court in right field and Matt Harvey on the mound, they're gonna have some fun. I mean, let let you know. It's all about the the schedule you play, though. The 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 athletics played four against the Detroit Tigers who are really bad. The diamondbacks who have a, I don't know. They're the diamondbacks offense is not ideal. The Astros have kind of struggled. Then they lost two out of three to the Dodgers who are the best team in baseball. So, I mean, you know, they've not played the toughest. They, they swept the twins. The twins are a good team. Who do you it think is? we are though? <laughs> That's what I'm saying though. Yeah. I think, I think we're, we're above. another one of those bad teams. I think, I think we're a step above the Tigers. I think we're a step above the Tigers. That's what I'll say. How do you think like, just out of curiosity, when we win this game in your mind, mm-hmm. how are we going to win it? What, like what is going to happen? Is it going to be Look. a two, one game? Are we going to out slug <laughs> them? Like, how's this going to work? Well, Please tell me. Jorge Lopez pitches game one. Okay. Mm-hmm. He just came off the best game of his career he looked incredible uh also that pro- against the texas rangers yeah that probably won't probably won't happen yeah, athletics but i think john means is pitching in this series so there's that uh and that's really all you need john means is great and i think right. that's that's what you get is john means goes in and just takes care of business but and john means wasn't good enough for us against the rangers John yeah. Means was good enough. He didn't allow any runs. The and Orioles, we didn't the Orioles score any. No, no, no. He wasn't good enough for the Orioles, though. Correct. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. But literally, no pitcher would have been good enough for the Orioles that day. That's True. correct. True. So, J- you know. just like just like Jacob Degrom is not good enough for the Mets. Well, maybe that's if they true. Jacob maybe Degrom if they th- pitches like no like no one on the entire planet and still has like an under five hundred winning percentage with them. <laughs> It's, it's a good point. If only Means could have given us twelve shutout innings that day, Tyler. I, you know, we could have had them. We might have had a so, shot. Yeah, right. And that well, that would have been really impressive because he would have held the runner on second base a couple times too. Absolutely, yeah. Look, guys, they're gonna win a game against the Athletics. Just don't <laughs> just just mark it down. Take we'll your, have to return to this next. Put week in your place your bets. We're good. All right. 
that's all we got for this week. Um, go follow us on social media at the warehouse pod on everything. You can email us, uh, subscribe to the podcast, rate us, review us, all that good stuff. We're on YouTube as well. And we are on Substack, thewarehousepod.substack.com. Uh, Eli, where do people follow you on social? Um, at Elijah Ginsburg on Twitter and at Ginzy55 on Instagram. Cool. And Jesse, how about you? People can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at Juggernaut8678. <laughs> Jesse has the exact same voice every time people he says that. <laughs> people can follow me at Juggernaut8678 on Instagram. <laughs> I just, I can't. <laughs> every time. It's good. You're predictable. That's, that's a muscle memory. <laughs> that's what that is. Muscle memory. It's fair. Um, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram, underscore Ty Young, and over on CamdenChat.com. So that's it, guys. Uh, we'll talk. We'll talk about the Orioles' inevitable win over the Athletics next week and <laughs> the series split with the Yankees. Um, thank you all for checking us out. This has been the Warehouse Podcast. Until next time, I'm Tyler. I'm Jesse, and I'm Eli. Go O's. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.